what is leadership what is our duty you know how do we relate to each other what is the purpose of our work everything you're writing here was written 4000 years ago he said it's all in the gita now i had found my bliss Welcome to the second renaissance where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness these winds of change. I'm Anders Sulman-Nilsson, global futurist, impact champion and father and your host for the second renaissance. Opening up our second season, we're speaking with Raj Sisodia, who is the author of Firms of Endearment, Conscious Capitalism and the Healing Organization and is the co-founder of the Conscious Capitalism Movement. He's a distinguished professor of global business and whole foods market research scholar in Conscious Capitalism at Babson College. Raj and I discuss everything there is to know about Conscious Capitalism and why entrepreneurs now have the power to heal both people, planet and profits. Raj shares vulnerably about his own journey of healing and awakening, how to identify your purpose, ayahuasca, the elevation of human consciousness, and how to create soulful businesses. I loved listening to Raj's sage wisdom, and I trust you will too. Raj, welcome to the second renaissance. Thank you, Anders. I missed the first one, so it's good to be at the second one. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a little while back. And, um, but I, I think what we're seeing, you know, at the moment is that, you know, plagues, pandemics, big, you know, social upheaval tend to lead to some kind of, you know, rebirth or as the renaissance is known etymologically, it is, a, you know, a rebirth or a revival of both old ideas and maybe new ideas. And, and, and you're certainly a master of some, some new ideas and maybe also some traditional uh, wisdom based upon my readings of, of some of your books. I came across your work, um, you know, back in the late 2090s, I think just at the time of the financial crisis or just before it hit. And I was just fascinated by, by this gentleman who was writing about, you know, these firms who put stakeholders essentially first and, and tell me if I'm bastardizing the book, but, um, and just, you know, by focusing on stakeholders, they in fact were outperforming their, their competition. Uh, can you just sort of lay the, the foundations for, for, for what was your eureka moment to realize that, you know, business can do good while doing well? Yeah, so I had been a business professor uh, at that point until, for about 20 years. I think I started teaching in 85. Um, as a marketing professor. And, you know, I had come into this profession somewhat accidentally. I didn't have a dream as a child of growing up to become a marketing professor. I don't know if very many children do. But uh, I discovered when I was finishing my MBA in, in Bombay uh, one day that a bunch of my friends were going to the U.S. Information Agency to get GMAT applications. And I said, why? We already are doing our MBA. They said, we want to apply for a PhD in business. I said, I didn't know you could get a PhD in business. So give me five minutes, I'll go with you. And so that's how I ended up uh, getting the applications and, uh, and ended up at Columbia University. And suddenly my life took a, uh, a different turn. But since I did not come into it with that uh, sort of lifelong passion around business or marketing, um, I had a bit of an outsider lens with which to look at it. And I had also come from a very different context. You know, India in the... Uh, 70s and early 80s was a very sort of socialist uh, democracy. 
and a very controlled and closed-off economy. And when you come to New York uh, in the early 1980s, I mean, it was you know, the Wild West of marketing. And it was uh, you know, almost overwhelming, like a tsunami of, of marketing. So I started to see all the traditional ways in which business uh, operated and how marketing pervaded our lives. And I soon started to ask the question, how much are we spending and what are we getting for all this? And uh, the answer turned out to be a lot and not much. That we were spending a trillion dollars a year in 2004 when I did the actual analysis on that question, which exceeded the GDP of India by 300 billion. So the GDP of India was 700 billion that year. 1.1 billion people were living on less than what we were spending here on ads, coupons, and, and junk mail. And I said, something seems wrong about that. And then what are we getting for that? Is society benefiting tremendously? And I found, well, no, actually, there's lots of negative consequences from all of that aggressive marketing and therefore overconsumption of many things that are not making our lives better. So the impact on customers, the impact on companies, and the impact on society, all of them did not seem to be very high on the positive side, and there were significant negative sides. So, so I had for about 10 years studied this question, marketing ethics, efficiency, effectiveness, and uh, and I was pretty much convinced that the way we do things isn't working right, that we're spending more and more over the years, over time, and we're getting worse outcomes. Customer loyalty and trust had plummeted over the three or four decades before then, while while spending had skyrocketed. And so everybody else is doing less, uh, doing more with less, and uh, the marketing function in a way we were doing less with more. So I started. I wrote, I did a book called "Does Marketing Need Reform." We asked a bunch of scholars. Uh, we had an event in Boston, a conference, and then a book. And pretty much we all concluded, yeah, this needs to be changed, reformed. And then I started a book which uh, initially had the somewhat shocking title, The Shame of Marketing, uh, which was a phrase used by Peter Drucker referring to the consumer movement in America. And he said, you know, marketing's job is to improve the lives of customers, to look after the well-being of customers. And when they have to organize against companies, that is the shame of marketing. That means we have failed. So I was going to write a whole book about the way in which we waste money and we take advantage of vulnerable customers and so forth. Fortunately, my mentor gave me good advice then. He said, uh, you know, Raj, people want to hear about the solution, not the problem. And so I turned that around. I called it In Search of Marketing Excellence. And I said, most companies spend a lot of money and get very poor outcomes because you cannot really buy customer loyalty and trust. You earn it. And so what is the opposite of that? You don't spend a ton of money and yet customers love you. So let's try to find companies where that is true, where the marketing budget is very small and yet the customer uh, relationships are very strong. So with that lens, we started to identify about a half dozen companies in the beginning. And we found some common patterns there. So Whole Foods was one of them. We found here's a company that doesn't have a VP of marketing or a chief marketing officer. They don't have an ad agency. They spend 90% less than the industry average on marketing. And yet they have fanatically loyal customers who are, in a way, uh, advocates on their behalf, right? Word of mouth is how they, how they spread. And so we said, okay, there's a different approach here to marketing. But then we zoomed out a little bit and said, wow, even the employees are loyal and trusting. Employee turnover is much lower here compared to other uh, companies in the industry. Suppliers, there's a strong relationship there. The communities embrace you know, the company and so forth. So it became a broader story, as you said, about stakeholders. And then what held them all together was this uh, uh, higher purpose and shared values, that they cared about something. So Whole Foods had a very clearly defined purpose right, to improve the health of people and the uh, food, uh, food system and the planet. 
by changing or educating people that what you put into your body makes a difference. So the idea of having a purpose and having stakeholders, that kind of emerged out of that. And then we started identifying more companies where these things were true. And we also discovered the leaders were different and the cultures were also different. People loved going to work at these companies. They didn't say, thank God, it's Friday. You know, they actually were excited about the prospect of going to work and, and making a difference in the world. So all of these things came together. And you know, in terms of a eureka moment, I do remember uh, a distinct couple of distinct moments in that journey. Uh, one was in June of 2005, so we were in a writing retreat uh, in uh, Pennsylvania here in the Pocono Mountains, and David Wolf and I were sitting across the table from each other, and at that point I was writing some of the stories of uh, companies that we had identified, and what they had done for customers, for employees, for the families of employees, for communities, and I suddenly found myself unable to see my screen because I had tears in my eyes. And I said to David, I said, David, you know, I've never experienced tears of joy connected to my work. I have frequently, as many of us have had anger and frustration, but not tears of joy. I think I just figured out what I want to do the rest of my life. I want to tell this story of business, that this is possible within a for-profit publicly traded company, that such deep humanity can exist. And so that was, I would say, uh, when my purpose in a way found me, I wasn't actively searching for my purpose. I knew what I what made me unhappy. So in, in Andrew Harvey's words, I was following my heartbreak for the preceding 10, 15 years. And now I had found my bliss or discovered where a path to, to my bliss. What would give me greatest joy versus what caused me greatest pain. Somewhere in there is your purpose. And then uh, fast forward uh, about six to eight months later when we finished our research and then we did the financial analysis because we didn't select these companies based on financial performance. We simply selected what we said were going concerns. They were not under the threat of bankruptcy, but there was no other financial criteria. Um, and, and we selected them based on these other criteria, the four pillars. Uh, and then we did the analysis to see how they had performed for their investors. And we wrote down our hypothesis. We said, you know, they're paying their people, frontline people, much better. In many cases, double, like Costco compared to Walmart. They're investing, uh, they're providing much better benefits, like healthcare, you know, and Starbucks. Uh, they are investing in the customer experience. They're paying their suppliers well. They're investing in their communities, investing in the environment. And they were paying taxes at a much higher rate. So I said, okay, maybe returns to investors are good, but nothing phenomenal because, of course, you're paying all these other people well, right? So uh, what we found actually was these companies had outperformed the market by a 9 to 1 ratio over a 10-year period. And that was stunning to us. And we said, how is that possible? Like, you know, are they printing money in the basement? Like, what's happening? <laughs> there is no free lunch, right? We were told. Well, it turns out that's not true. That when you align everything together, business becomes this incredible um, flywheel of value creation and it just feeds on itself right to happy customers and happy suppliers and happy employees i mean they all uh, connect to each other and that results in economic growth uh, but it also results in many many other benefits as well and so that became another eureka moment for me that wow this is not a story about you know, which road do i take do i take the high road that leads to purpose or the low road that leads to profit uh, it says there's no you don't need to make that choice Profit and purpose are not a trade-off. That they, in fact, can go together if you think about it the right way. Right? That you can integrate these polarities. And that's become a big theme of my life, these so-called or versus and uh, beliefs that we have. Right? We can actually find the 
the higher ground where we can integrate both sides of that polarity. So, so those were some, and then I had some that came later, which we can talk about. Mm. Well, there's, I mean, there's always this myth, right, that you know, business is purely existing, really, for you know the profit motive, and that you know this sort of triple bottom line or the three P's of you know people, planet, and profit. I mean, it's traditional business wisdom is that those are incompatible or even, you know, mutually exclusive, right? And uh, that's been part of our, you know, our linear economy of sort of take, make and waste. I mean, how, how, how does it reconcile? Is, 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 it, is it the fact that, you know, workers are more engaged and thus creating a ripple effect of, you know, great customer service and thus, you know, in the case of Whole Foods, for example, that, you know, customers become brand advocates and as a result and you create this sort of virtuous loop or, you know, what are what are the mechanics? Because when I'm hearing higher taxes and, you know, when I'm hearing, you know, paying your staff even, even better, not just a, you know, a minimum wage, but of course a living wage, et cetera. I mean, you know, the, the sort of hobby economist in me goes, how, how does all that stack up? <laughs> Sounds like voodoo econ- economics, doesn't it? Uh, well, actually, that was our, our question as well, because when we saw the outperformance, we said, wow, what's happening here? How is that working? And then you start digging into it, and then you start to see the, uh, the interconnections and the interdependencies, as you said, between stakeholders. Right? So this business uh, is an interconnected, living, breathing system where everything impacts everything else. Right? So happy employees obviously will then result in happier customers, but by the same token, unhappy employees. Uh, you know, think, think about it. If you've got a company that has a, and I think Walmart had a 70% employee turnover, right? So people last eight months. When you've got Costco, that has a 7% employee turnover. The people come there and they stay for 15, 20 years. Uh, and they are much more productive and they're, you know, they know the customers by name and they are, you know, their operational um, efficiencies are much greater. You know, there are all kinds of benefits that come, right? When you start to invest, there's a there's a wonderful book that explains some of the underlying mechanics of this. It's called the Good Jobs Strategy by uh, Zeneb Tan, who's a professor here at MIT, and she identified looked at four companies that all retailers that pay their people very well provide much better working conditions than their competitors do, and yet they are highly competitive when it comes to price uh, in the marketplace. So it's Costco, Trader Joe's. Um, quick pick and uh, a Spanish retailer named Mercadona. Right, so these things are connected. So when you treat people, first of all, there are tremendous cost savings. So you're paying your people more, yes, but you're saving on employee turnover. It costs money to replace those people and train the new people and all of that, right? And and the new people, uh, you know, it takes them years to get up to speed in terms of being effective at their work. Uh, marketing is one of the huge cost savings because when you have happy, delighted stakeholders, not just customers, but all of your stakeholders are happy and delighted, they all become advocates on your behalf. You get, you get the benefit of free marketing, right? You get the benefit of, of good press uh, as well. There's goodwill all around. Nobody's staying awake at night, you know, among all your stakeholders thinking how they can take advantage of you. Everybody, the way I, the way I put it is that uh, when you have shared purpose and shared values and do all these things, all of the stakeholders now become allies in value creation. Because if the CEO says we're all about profit maximization, shareholder value, right, then the employees hear that and say, okay, I need to maximize my profits, which is get paid as much and work as little. Customers say, I need the lowest price on every transaction. I'm not loyal to anybody. Suppliers say, I, I, we need the highest. We need to improve our margins and cut corners where we can. Uh, society says, we're going to tax you as much as possible. Everybody becomes a taker from the system. 
But when you have these other elements working, everybody is a contributor to that system. And saying, how can I you know, further enhance this whole experience that where I believe in what this company is trying to do, whether I'm a customer, whether I'm an investor, whether I'm an employee, et cetera, I'm going to go the extra mile. And, and I think the biggest single factor out of all of that is probably the employees, because if you look at average uh, employee turn, uh, uh, engagement around the world, according to Gallup, overall is 15% engagement. Right? That means 85% are either disengaged or what they say, actively disengaged, they actually hate their company and hate their work. Uh, and these companies, conscious companies, have 80, 90, 95% passionate commitment. So that difference is enormous. Right? You've got 15% passive engagement versus a 90% passionate commitment. Because ultimately, people make all the difference. Right? Every company runs on human energy, not physical but energy, but creative and caring energy that people are able to bring. And that, you, know, you get all of that in tremendous discretionary effort and impact coming from people. And, and there's much less friction in the system. You're not wasting money trying to get people to do things that are against their own better natures. I, mean, I, find, I find it fascinating and, and I find that there's so much sort of combination of, you know, both sort of old school um, wisdom, you know, traditional wisdom in, in, in what you're saying, but it has such, such a modern application. Um, I, mean, I remember doing some consulting in, in Japan a number of years ago for, for a pharmaceutical company over there. And I was introduced to a concept uh, that the Japanese uh, call Ikigai. I'm sure you've come across it and from, from Okinawa originally, and it means life's purpose. So probably right up up your alley. I mean, the French will call it raison d'être, or you know, reason for being in in Australia. Um, and it's this wonderful overlapping sense that you know we can focus on you know doing what we're good at, doing what we love, doing yes what you know feeds our families, makes some money, but also importantly, what's what the world needs or what's good for the planet. And it just feels to me not 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 just sort of the zeitgeist and 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 the emotion and what i'm observing but also you know i see the likes of wall street and larry fink of blackrock and you know all of these companies moving towards esg reporting feels like you know the the, the sort of time has come for you know firms of endearment to continue to shine and certainly of for all of us to sort of embrace this moment of, of conscious capitalism. Do, do you see that or is, is there a feeling or a sense or, or an observation that you, that you have that kind of goes, yep, now, now is the moment and maybe even the pandemic accelerated it? Yeah, I think so. I, it, it actually felt like that even before the pandemic. 2019 felt like a watershed moment uh, because of a few things that came together. The Business Roundtable, which is the largest business association of the largest companies in the U.S. issued their revised statement of the purpose of business, which used to be all about economic value. They said primary purpose is this. Now they said it's about creating value for all stakeholders, taking the long-term view and, and having your own purpose and so forth. So they pretty much adopted the language of what we talk about in conscious capitalism. Uh, and so that was a big deal. And then uh, Davos had their uh, Davos declaration that year around stakeholder capitalism. And as you mentioned, BlackRock and Larry Fink had been talking about this for a number of years. So it felt like, and we, I was actually in Europe, in Berlin, uh, in, uh, in, in late 2019, and we were in the shadow of the, of the Berlin Wall. I mean, we, our hotel was literally next door. And it was 30 years after the Berlin Wall had come down, right? 
it was November of 89, and we were there, I think, October of uh, 2019. And that, I think, was a significant uh, it's a metaphor in a way. Because think about the world before the Berlin Wall came down and, and what changed the next morning. Right? Suddenly the world was different. Nobody had predicted that, that this enormous change could happen so suddenly and so uh, without, without a gunshot being fired. And suddenly we had a, a rising consensus around freedom, free markets and free people as a way to organize. I think something similar, our Berlin Wall moment may be upon us in a way uh, where suddenly the paradigm shifts. And whereas we had seemed like a fringe idea before and the dominant paradigm was, uh, was deeply in, uh, embedded, suddenly now the paradigm has shifted to the degree where one would be hard-pressed to make the case for the traditional narrow, self-centered view of business, right? You're going to get up and make that speech and people are going to say, but what, what about this? What about that, right? So the idea of not having a purpose, the idea of not really caring about the well-being of your of a customer, employees and their families and so forth, viewing them all as means to an end. I think that idea is, is fast. Uh, Passing from the uh, you know, from from the consciousness. Now I think there's still there's always stickiness to old systems and old ways of doing things. I think uh, business schools are still in a way holding back or holding us back. Many of them are because they're still teaching according to the old textbooks and the old theories. Bad theories can destroy good management, you know. And we're we're still uh, uh, wedded to many of those bad theories. But I do feel like we are in the midst of that tipping point transition where we are now, the questions that I'm getting no longer are, what is this and why is it needed? Uh, and increasingly the question is, uh, we get it, but how, how do we do this? Right? How do we transform? How do we take our companies on this uh, journey? How do we find these kinds of leaders? How do we develop leaders and so forth? So, so I think that is also a strong signal uh, that indeed things have shifted quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, I I tend to, uh, you know, I'm a I'm an immigrant here here in Australia, right? I'm, I'm from from Sweden originally, and you know, before the pandemic, I thought of myself as a global citizen. I think I'm still a global citizen. I just don't visit as many places physically um, with carbon f offset flights, I should say. Um, but you know, I, my background um, as a Swede gives me a you know particular lens. So even though I'm a bit of a slushy now, and I have you know dual citizenship, uh, Swedish Australian, and there's a lot of Swedish values that I grew up with. Um, whether it was you know environmentalism or the, you know appreciation for the outdoors, or you know hopefully some level of progressive thought, and maybe even a you know design aesthetic and things like that. That you know still very you know core to my being, and even probably a bit of social democracy even in the way I view entrepreneurship um, I remember when I was doing um, part of my global executive uh, MBA um, and part of the course was in Bangalore at the Indian Institute of Management and um, I came across a concept called frugal innovation or um, and tell me if I you know incorrectly pronounce this or jugard innovation which you know, I think of as, you know, doing doing more with less um, and sort of these ingenious solutions. I'm, I'm curious, is there something about, you know, your, you know, your, your Indian background, uh, anything about, you know, Indian culture or the, that ingenuity that you think has played a part in, 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 in your thinking about business at all? 
You know, I think deep down, uh, it probably did in an unconscious way for many years. And then subsequently, it became in a conscious way. Because uh, I grew up uh, like you in a variety of uh, different places. I mean, I left India when I was seven. Uh, my father came back from Canada having gotten his PhD in agriculture, science, plant science. Uh, and we moved to Barbados, and then we moved to California, and then we moved to Canada. So I spent five years abroad and then went back to India when I was 12. And then had my the rest of my childhood and college and, and graduate school in India. Now, in all those years, I did not really connect to the spiritual dimensions of India. You know, people from all over the world go to India for seeking, seeking that in many cases, but I did not have that. In fact, I went to a series of Catholic schools, because most English language schools in those days were run by missionaries. And so they were teaching the Bible, and later on they were teaching some version of ethics, but not. Uh, and, and at home, I wasn't getting anything, any of the Indian wisdom. So I grew up with none of that. And um, it was not until I was literally in my late 40s that for the first time, you know, my sister gave me a book to read when I was bored and had nothing to do once when I was visiting my parents. And, and that kind of started my exploration about spiritual things. Uh, it was something called the Art of Living, uh, which is a movement starting in India, in Bangalore, actually. That's where it started, but now it's in like 150 countries and all that. And so that kind of started my curiosity. And then I was writing Firms of Endearment at that time. And I think some of that, that consciousness started to seep into that in a, in a sort of a implicit way. But then when that book came out, and I was in Bombay again for my 25th MBA reunion, and uh, the book was not yet out you know, in, in actual uh, print form, but I had a, a pre-publication galley. Uh, and I gave it to my professor there, who had been my, one of my mentors in my MBA program. And um, he had taught us strategy. And <clears throat> I said to him, Dr. Shrikant, uh, I really want to know what you think about this book, because everything else I've done comes from the head, but this book also comes from the heart. And the next day I went to see him and he said, you know, Raj, normally I go to bed at uh, 8 because I wake up at 4. But last night I was up until 11 reading your book. And I said, wow, that means a lot to me. He said, yes, I'm enjoying it. But as I read it, I realize it's nothing new. And I said, what do you mean? For me, this was very new. He said, everything you're writing here was written 4,000 years ago. He said, it's all in the Gita. So Gita is one of the Indian texts. And it's, it's not a big book, it's a small book, but it's really practical lessons about life given by a god Krishna to a warrior on the battlefield. And he said, it's all there. And I said, nobody ever told me to read the Gita. I had no idea. You know, he said, everything we think we're discovering for the first time, people have thought about thousands of years ago and, and thought deeply about it. We can apply it to today's world. So that was a big wake-up call for me. And after that, I started leaning into it and started learning more. And I realized that many of these principles indeed are embedded. You know, what is leadership? What is our duty? You know, how do we relate to each other? What is the purpose of our work? All of those kinds of things are, are talked about. You could almost call this karma capitalism, you know, conscious capitalism, right? Same idea of karma can apply to this. Uh, the idea of detachment from the outcome, focusing on the right action and not being attached to a, what Buddha called a cherished outcome. Because if you have a particular number in mind or a particular market share or a particular profitability, you're going to engage in wrong actions in order to achieve that cherished outcome. Instead, if you simply focus on what are the right actions and, and the outcomes will be the right outcomes, right? I don't control everything that goes into that, but it will be the right outcome. So I think there's a lot of the spiritual aspects that are kind of embedded in this philosophy 
And as I said, subsequent to 2008, I started to educate myself not only on Indian wisdom, but also then there's Sufi wisdom, there's Judaic wisdom, there's Christian wisdom, etc. There's wisdom from you know, the uh, Confucian tradition, etc. We did actually a series of conferences around the world called Practical Wisdom, uh, where we had people look at the modern uh, lessons that, uh, that we can learn from those ancient systems. And the realization is that if something that was written thousands of years ago is still resonating with people today, that there has to be something of lasting value there. And we should not lose it. We shouldn't say that all the wisdom I need is in the latest issue of the Harvard Business Review. It's something most important wisdom might be 3,000 years old. So that is, I think, an important part of this. But I think the consciousness element borrows from all over the world. Right? Capitalism, we used to talk about American capitalism and Japanese capitalism and European capitalism. And that's true, there are varieties. But I think this is, a, this is an attempt at an integration of, uh, of uh, what we know that is universal, I think, to the human experience. Yeah, and I think, you know, you see, you see this all around the world now with, you know, certainly, you know, stoicism has, has had a bit of a revival, a renaissance, and, and you know, this trending in Silicon Valley amongst, uh, amongst some, and, and certainly there's some, some lessons there in terms of what we can control and can't control. I, I, would, I would probably hazard a guess to say that many performance psychologists would agree with your statements around, you know, getting detached from the outcome and just focusing on doing, you know, doing the right things. You know, you hear this from, from ten, tennis players like Roger Federer, for example, if you, you know, if you're interested in sports, um, you know, even, even the first Renaissance was very much a revival of, of ancient texts and ancient wisdoms. And so, you know, there is, there is this sense that, you know, <laughs> what's old is, is new again. Um, and um, I mean, I even think of, but you know what you've just shared there. You know, in terms of when I go to um, yoga class here, here in Australia, and um, the yoga teacher, you know, once said that you know the 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 longest path that a human will ever tread, or the longest journey a human will ever make, is between the head and the heart. And I think there's some some something profound in terms of you know uh, you know even aligning our chakras right to 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 start thinking more consciously about, you know, the effect we're having and living in alignment with, with, with our own purpose. So Martin Luther King said, we must be tough-minded and tender-hearted right, at the same time. And that's kind of also bringing in the masculine-feminine integration. Because I know this is something that, that you're quite passionate about. And I've, I've, I've heard you uh, speak about this and, and also read about the sort of, you know, feminization of, of, of values in, in business. I'm, I'm curious... You know, many people have said that, you know, pandemics, the pandemic, you know, hit female, you know, employment um, or increased female unemployment. Some people even call it the she session. Um, is that is that sort of anecdotal evidence or is there still this sort of, you know, revival of female entrepreneurship and, and feminization of, of corporate cultures? And, and, and if so, and if not, why is it important that it, it's... Heralded. Well, I think the long-term trend will continue. It has to. You know, this is. Uh, I think this is the century when we finally see the awakening <clears throat> on that side. You know, the 19th century was one of uh, ending of uh, of slavery, and the 20th century was ending totalitarianism. I think the 21st century is about ending the sidelining of the feminine, which we have done for millennia. Uh, 
<clears throat> for just about all of human history. And so it's not just women being marginalized, it's also the feminine energy within men. See, all of us are born with the full complement of energies. We have masculine energy and feminine energy as it is labeled. Right? The words sometimes can get in the way. But we have that, but we have systematically suppressed nurturing, caring, compassion, etc. They've been seen as signs of weakness. And that in order to succeed in the world, and our human history is rife with wars, and the world there was a harsh place, and you know it did kind of overdevelop in a way the aggressive hypermasculine side. But we're not in that world anymore. <clears throat> you know, in Europe, leading up to 1946, European nations fought 1,200 wars with each other in 600 years, right? an average of two wars per year. And since 1946, there have been zero wars between European nations, right? So we are in a different chapter. And so I think <clears throat> we see it actually, Scandinavian countries have much more of the so-called feminine values uh, that are driving society, whether it's the safety net or this uh, emphasis on, on, on uh, childcare and all the other things, or parental leave. So I think that is a longer term trend that is necessary and long overdue. And it's not about replacing masculine with feminine, it's about balancing and integrating. It's about saying we have had a hyper unbalanced system for a long time. And when we have a complete absence of the feminine in the body politic, as well as in, in the world of business and commerce, then the healthy masculine, which is about you know, discipline and focus and results and structure, it can become the hyper masculine, which is domination, aggression, competition, hyper competition, winning at all costs. We need to balance that out with the healthy feminine. Uh, love and uh, caring, compassion. So my observation had been early on in this journey after writing Firms of Endearment, um, which, by the way, I had an interesting uh, experience just before the book came out. I was teaching for a German company named Siemens, uh, an executive program in New Jersey, and uh, on another book of mine called The Rule of Three. And at lunch, one of the participants asked me, so what are you working on now? And I said, oh, I'm very excited. I have a book coming out in February called uh, Firms of Endearment. And he didn't ask me anything about it. He said, oh, I would never read that. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I would be embarrassed if I was sitting in an airplane reading a book with that title and somebody I knew walked by. <laughs> and he said, you probably are going to have a heart on the cover, aren't you? And I said, well, the cover hasn't been finalized yet, but maybe that's not a bad idea, you know. But it really reflected this belief that that just makes you weak. You talk about these kinds of things, you know, that love and compassion and caring. Now, it turns out those are the most powerful things in the world. People will do anything for those you know, reasons, right, out of love. Uh, and so it's a long overdue uh, balancing that's happening. We wrote a book called Shakti Leadership a few years ago um, with my friend uh, Nilima Bhatt, where we talked about integrating feminine and masculine power in, in leadership. And that combination, as, as I said, Martin Luther King said, you must be tough-minded and tender-hearted. That, that combination is so powerful. So it's not only about having more women. And I just saw a tweet from Paul Polman that now women are about 30% of corporate boards. And that's up quite significantly in the last five to 10 years. And it needs to continue. Uh, but we are moving. You know, the fact is that women are now 60% of college graduates across all industrialized nations. In fact, they outnumber men everywhere in the world except South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and so white-collar professions are statistically going to be dominated by women, and women are finally rising into leadership. And a lot of research showing that what is needed out of leaders today are things that come naturally to most women. 
But men have to actually unlearn what they think leadership is about. That's the the empathy, caring, inclusiveness, uh, you know, cooperation, all the rest of it. There was a good book called The Athena Doctrine that had all the data, lots of data on that. So I think this is a long-term trend uh, that will continue despite any short-term blips that may have been experienced uh, uh, during the uh, pandemic because of children being at home or whatever the you know, various reasons might be or that they were deemed non-essential. I don't know. I'm not sure what exactly are the reasons behind that. But I don't expect that to be a long-term trend. I think it's going to continue in the direction that it has been. And, and that's, that's essential. I think to me, uh, that would heal most of the big challenges we face in the world are because we have had too much expression of the hyper-masculine energy. And that has caused a lot of suffering in the world. It has been at the root of all the wars, probably, uh, with very few exceptions. And, uh, and that is ultimately what is, what is needed. And, you know, for me, 2018, uh, I turned 60 and I worked with a coach for those. So it was a, year, a time of really, wow, how did I become 60 all of a sudden? And so I'm looking back at my life and I'm trying to make sense of it and understand. And I'm writing a book about healing. I was writing the healing organization at the time. And I was in my normal mode of full steam ahead and, you know, just going from project to project and meanwhile traveling and, you know, airport to airport and all of that. And so four different women told me, Raj, you need to slow down. If you're writing about healing, you need to experience your own healing. You need to look within and say, what needs to heal within me? And take some time off. And I said, well, I don't have time for that. You know, I've got a book deadline. I said, no, book deadlines are flexible. You can move that. This is important. So I, I, fortunately, I listened to them and I, I took five months. I delayed the book by five months and I said yes to all these experiences, including going to the Himalayas uh, for when I turned 60 there, up in the high Himalayas on the border between India and Tibet, which is a seat of Buddhist wisdom, that part of the world. I went to the uh, Amazon rainforest in Ecuador, deep inside the rainforest. I spent 10 days there with the Pachamama Alliance and uh, an experience which we spent time with two different we literally lived with two different native people there the achuar and the zapara and uh, i had a shamanic healing experience with ayahuasca you know deep inside the jungle which was life-changing uh, i worked on, i went to a silent retreat and i worked with a coach for the first time and after she heard my life story and the trajectory of my work and my background you know i come from india which is a very very patriarchal society and I come from a subculture within that, you know, we have a caste system and I come from the warrior class or caste. And so I come from a hyper-masculine feudal subculture within that. And father and grandfather who were the extreme embodiments of that energy. And then I was very much like my mother. And she's the complete opposite of that, right? She's just pure unconditional love and gentle and, uh, and inclusive and so forth. And... Um, what my coach told me after hearing my life story, she said, you know, you spent 45 years, the first 45 years of your life trying to impress your father. You know, he got a PhD, so you got a PhD, he became a professor, you became, you know, you're trying to do all these things to get worldly recognition and success that he would respect. And then you spend the last 15 years honoring your mother, starting with firms of endearment. And then all this work, you know, and, and Shakti leadership and everybody matters. And everything is, this is bringing your mother's energy into the world. And I said, wow, I never thought of it that way. You know? And then she said, does your mother know wow. that? <laughs> well, I said, I didn't know that. How would my mother know that? She said, well, you need to call her. 
I'm telling you that. So I, I resisted, but I finally I did and turned into the most healing conversation of my life because she had no idea. You know. And I said, you know, what you, what you stand for is what, what the world needs. Uh, she just started saying, I am nothing, I am nothing. I said, no, you are everything. This is, you know, this is the deepest aspect of what it means to be human. To me, the, the whole notion of bringing the feminine forward, you know, honoring the feminine, integrating the feminine, it's not, about, not just about having more women, it's all the men whose hearts need to be opened. Right? All the men, men through our leadership roles who need to get in touch with that side. When I went to Barry Waymiller, the book I wrote, Everybody Matters, about that, I just went there on a discovery mission to say, do I want to write this book? Is there a story here? And I went into a room and I asked people, tell me how your life used to be and how it changed when you got acquired by this you know, Barry Waymiller. And their culture had you know, been transformed. And, 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 and they just started, 15 middle-aged blue-collar men sitting in a room and they're just silent. And then several wow. of them have tears in their eyes, and they're, you know, softly crying. And I said, what did I say? You know, they were moved to tears wow. and then they started telling me how dramatically their lives had been transformed. So when you can have men able to connect to their heart and open up and be vulnerable in front of each other, I said, there's something unique here. There's something very powerful in that. You know? So I think that is what's needed here is, uh, is awakening that heart and also healing that yes. inner child. Yeah. That's the other thing I learned is we all have trauma. Uh, and we don't, if we don't heal our traumas, I mean, we think trauma is reserved for people who go to Afghanistan and Iraq and watch their friends get blown up. Every one of us has trauma. Life is traumatic. Life is difficult. And we have, we may not have PTSD, but we have post-traumatic stress injury. And we need to heal that because if you get into a position of leadership and you haven't healed your traumas, then you are going to be hijacked and, and triggered by so many things and you'll be in a reactive mode. You won't really be able to lead people in, a, in the way that they need to be led. You will cause more suffering in the world unless you heal yourself. And I think that's been another part of my exploration in the last couple of years is, as I'm working on this memoir, is what are my traumas and how do I heal them? How do I, in fact, experience what is now being called post-traumatic growth? It's not just neutralizing, but actually growing from that and becoming stronger than if you never had that trauma in the first place. So many goosebump moments just, just listening to you. And there's, there's so much that, you know, deeply resonates in, 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 that, in that wisdom. Um, yeah. And so many reminders of, of maybe my own journeys, you know, through what you've just shared, uh, sort of coming up for me as well. I know you, you shared something and I, it's a line that stuck with me, which was, and um, you might have been inspired by someone else, I, I forget who you quoted, but that we are victims of victims. And um, that it's somehow, you know, our responsibility to kind of grow through that and, and, and you know, through our entrepreneurship or through our lives, contribute to, to, to the healing. Can you just share a little bit more about that, Raj? The phrase uh, victims of victims, I heard from Edith Eva Eager, who is a Auschwitz uh, survivor, uh, who I met at uh, Deepak Chopra's uh, Sages and Scientists uh, conference. And uh, she was literally uh, there with Joseph Mengele. I mean, she was, because she was a dancer, she was wow. thrilled, or her mother and her sister uh, died in those gas chambers. And she, she came out of there basically a skeleton. People thought she was dead. She was literally, the Nazis had thrown her in a pile of dead bodies. And an American soldier walking by when they liberated the, uh, 
nauseous you know he saw her finger moving and he pulled her out of that pile and and then she went back to hungary where she was from and uh, you know she weighed like 50 60 pounds something like that she eventually made her way to the us but she had such severe post uh, what do you call uh, survivor guilt that for 20 years she never told anybody what she had been through and her life was completely constrained right she could not really live she had that uh, survivor guilt like why did i live and others died my mother died my sister died and finally she had to go back to auschwitz and relive that experience is what we say you know in trauma now that you have to reveal it you have to feel it and you have to heal it right if you don't reveal it and you hide it uh, and you refuse to let yourself feel it then you're going to numb it and you're going to relive it constantly and you'll be driven by that right constantly all your life so she went back and she lay down again on those uh, stone floors and you know just touched everything and from there she was able to heal and then start her career and became a well-known psychiatrist and uh, uh, author and speaker and so forth but as she said we are victims of victims uh you know the the nazi guards who tormented us were themselves in a way victims right of the system and the, who they were uh, beholden to and so forth and the the challenge and the opportunity for all of us is to say we want to break the cycle of victimhood now in my case you know i had a father uh, with whom i had a difficult relationship but he had an even tougher father than <laughs> my father was to me right and and i could have he was trying to pass that on in a way right what his father inflicted on him he was trying to pass on to me and i i resisted and then i said i don't want to pass this on to my son so this is that's where awareness uh, and uh, consciousness comes in right breaking that cycle of of victimhood uh, and i think that's what healing requires because unless we we do that we're going to continue to experience those traumas and be driven by them and live uh live based upon them so that's really uh, to me a big part of being a leader is is starting uh with this this idea of triple vision which is to say heal me in order to serve we and then impact the world so it's me we world and we often ignore me in the process especially people who are service minded or purpose driven we say it's all about others and all about the world and we sacrifice ourselves uh, in the process now i used to believe that if you're living your purpose that you cannot burn out and some of my students challenged me on that and they said okay we want to do a research paper on that question about purposeful living and burnout and found out actually there's a positive correlation between people who are highly purpose driven and burning out because you get unbalanced you pour everything you have into that and you neglect your own well-being right you have spiritual well-being because of purpose but your mental emotional physical social well-being is all sacrificed in that process right so we have to start by saying my most important stakeholder is me and that's not a selfish thing to say that is saying that if i don't take care of myself i cannot be of any use to others and and my friend richard lider who's one of the experts on purpose has many wonderful books about purpose we had him on our podcast recently and you know he said there is a generic purpose for all human beings and that is to give <clears throat> and to grow we are here to evolve ourselves we have this extraordinary potential we are, we are literally divine beings in many ways we are the only creatures with imagination with free will 
uh, we have the ability to conjure up something and make it manifested in the world. Everything you see around you existed inside somebody's mind before it existed in the uh, physical plane. Right? And so to give and to grow. So we have to grow and evolve ourselves and then really our deepest satisfaction comes from giving, from making a difference in others. But again, if we don't focus on ourselves as part of that, uh, we cannot do that, right? So a me-we world, and the more impact we want to make in the world, the more we have to focus on our own healing and uh, the depths of uh, plumbing the depths of our own consciousness and understanding ourselves at a deeper and deeper level. And that's a never-ending journey, right? They are, as they said, they are galaxies within us uh, that uh, that we can explore in a lifetime. So I think that is essential that that uh, that combination of things uh, for all people aspiring to be conscious leaders. Yeah. Um, and I'm thinking in, in this, I mean, in this context of, you know, for, for our listeners, many of which are, you know, business leaders and when they're thinking about, you know, me, we, and, and, and planet or world, you know, some of us can probably get a little bit of like purpose anxiety. If we, you know, if we haven't found it, <clears throat> I believe I'm on the path and maybe I've identified what it is. Um, but, you know, if, if, you know, people read, you know, books about purpose or they read, you know, it starts with why by Simon Sinek and, you know, everyone goes, you know, to be, you need to be a purpose-led leader or a purpose-led organization and someone hasn't quite found it. Have you, have you got any advice or, you know, ways of thinking about how you identify it? Yeah, I think, uh, well, for me, the most impactful book was Man's Search for Meaning, which when I discovered it, and I, I discovered that book when I was... I think almost 50, like maybe 48, 49 years old. Somebody gave it to me. Yeah. And I immediately bought Victor 200. Frankel. Yeah, yeah, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. And, I, and, and again, another Auschwitz uh, survivor. Um, he wrote that book in nine days, you know, after he came back from Auschwitz. And he poured all the wisdom that he had accumulated as a psychiatrist in Vienna, Austria, working with suicidal people before he was taken away to the concentration camps. Uh, but that book, I bought 200 copies and I gave to everybody I knew. You know, my students, friends, family, children, everybody. I said, you've got to read this book. And it's very powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, I think for me, the path was uh, accidental to some degree, or I also believe in Synchronicities, which is another wonderful book by Joseph Jaworski, that somehow you're guided by unseen hands towards a set of experiences, and ultimately it all falls into place, which is what's been happening for me lately, more and more things clicking in that way. Um, but as I said earlier, it's what was about following your heartbreak and and following your bliss. Right? What gives you pain? What gives you joy? Figure out there's something uniquely that resonates for you that other people may be unmoved by or uninspired by, but for you it's it's it's, uh, it's deeply resonant. And somewhere in there is your is your purpose. Uh, but I think your phrase is very apt. Even my own children have that purpose anxiety. It's like when I grew up, nobody ever talked about purpose. You know, I never heard the word. You know, until I was, as I said, in my in my forties, uh, the book "A Purpose Driven Life" by Rick Warren, which is, I think, the highest selling hardcover after the Bible in the history of publishing. You know, it all feeds into or speaks to a hunger that exists in the human soul uh, that each of us is unique and each of us is uniquely powerful, and that we have there's a reason why we're here. As Mark Twain said, the second most important day of your life is the reason why. You were here to figure out why you were born, right? Uh, so I think that is a quest that once we are in that inquiry, 
I think then it then it comes to us. I mean, for me, the way I articulate my purpose now is to bring heart, healing, and soul to business and leadership, so we can build a better world for all. And I think those are the things that are missing, and that seems to be my uh, role to play and to channel you know, that energy that I I received from my mother, and I saw it modeled by her, and. Um, and so, yeah, I think there, there are modalities, there are methods that people talk about, uh, but ultimately it's about something touching you at a deep level. And that's not fully in mm-hmm. your control. You cannot intellectually get there. You know, my tears, my body was telling me something when I had tears. Right? When you're moved to tears by something, ideally tears of joy, then you know there's something there. Yeah, Pro- profound. And uh, yeah, I'm deeply grateful um, that you've shared your your wisdoms and 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 your journey in a in a very heartful and uh, soulful way today on, on on the second renaissance with all of our listeners and and viewers, uh, Raj. Well, I'd just like um, to share one more uh, aspect of that, if you don't mind, which is that. Oh, uh, please! I've I've got all day. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when I went to Ecuador and the rainforest, uh, I went with the Pachamama Alliance and Lynn Twist, and I had interviewed her for the book and. The next day she called me and she said, Raja, you were in my dream last night. And the message was, you need to come on this trip with us because you're going to learn more about healing in those 10 days than you would in years of, of uh, research in a library. And so I went on that and then uh, it was incredible to be in the rainforest with the indigenous people, absorbing their wisdom, their way of being, their connection to nature, recognizing that we, come in, we don't come into this world, we come out of this world. We're as much a part of nature as a tree is, and yet we hold ourselves separate. And, and hence, all the, in a way, we've been killing our own mother, right, or our planet. Um, and so that was all very, very profound. And then in the middle of that, we had an experience with a shaman and the ayahuasca uh, ceremony. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I am. I, I, I have not had the experience yet, but it is... Um... It's something I'm um, ayahuasca curious, certainly. Yes. Well, it's a pretty profound experience. You know, they've been doing it for thousands of years. Anytime there's a significant transition or something, you know, that they need to understand at a deeper level, they go on a journey, as they call it, a plant journey. And these are plants that exist in nature, and they are able to give us access to certain levels of consciousness uh, that some people might get there by decades of meditation or other means. But for many of us, this is an avenue to explore other realms of consciousness, you know, because our our way of thinking and being becomes so uh, sort of routinized over the decades that we live, and you know, our ego kind of dictates how we behave and how we think, and we get these routinized patterns of thought and behavior uh, that are very hard to break out of. And what this does, in a way, uh, as I read a book about all of this afterwards, is that it quiets the part of the mind that's called the default mode network which is where your ego and your habitual patterns of behavior and thought uh, reside, that part of the brain almost completely quiets. But other parts of the brain start firing quite dramatically, and you start having access to other forms of consciousness, other forms of seeing and being uh, through that experience. And the, 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 the thought is that consciousness, you can either think about it as most people do, is that something that exists inside your head and inside my head. My consciousness is in here, yours is in there. And it's a function of your life experiences and everything else, right? Another theory is that consciousness is a property of the universe. 
So it's like gravity or electromagnetic waves, and we're all tuning into it in our own way, right? And and filtering it through our own uh, experiences, which would then explain many phenomena that do occur, where you say how all these things are not connected, and yet somehow they're able to uh, operate in a in a synchronized and coordinated way, right? You see that a lot in the animal kingdom. So anyway, I had this experience. Um, uh, that night, with this shaman on the banks of a river, it was a it was a lunar eclipse night. Uh, we had hiked all day. We had gone to a sacred waterfall, we kind of cleansed there, left everything behind, and then uh, came to this uh, little uh, settlement where the shaman was. And they had been brewing this for two days, this particular ayahuasca brew. And we 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 took that. We lay down on these banana leaves under the sky. Um, and then after an hour or so, I started to feel something you know, different within us. And for me, the initial experience was one of emotional floodgates opening up. You know, I, had, I had been emotionally blocked for 25, 30 years. You know. I mean, the only time I had tears was when I was writing that book. Uh, but before that, I had, you know, and after that, I had been really blocked. But suddenly, you know, I was emotionally released. I heard a baby crying in the distance. I just started to then grieve. I had not been able to cry even when people died. You know, close relatives, people I love dearly. Somehow I just could not express emotion, you know. And suddenly that all opened up. And then I started getting visions. And I'll just share one uh, one vision with uh, you and your listeners. I had gone there to learn about healing. I said, what do I need to learn about healing for the world, for the world of business? How can business be a force for healing in the world? Reducing suffering, increasing joy, promoting healthy growth. Um, and so the message I got is that here's what the world needs in order to heal, in the world of business as well. <clears throat> there were four words floating in my, in my vision as I lay there. And the words were love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. And they came as a preformed acronym. You know, I like to create acronyms for many things. So this is the list. Mm. I was being given the list. Here's the list. Mm -hmm. Love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. That everything we do should come from a place of love. But it usually doesn't, and especially in the world of business, it does. It comes from greed. It comes from fear. It comes from ego or whatever it might be. It doesn't come from a place of genuine love and wanting to be of service. That we are all born innocent, but at some point we lose our innocence and we become corrupted by the ways of the world. We start using our intelligence to trick others, to take advantage of others, right? Um, rather than to serve others. We have agendas, hidden agendas. We are not without guile, right? We are full of guile. And so this idea of a return to innocence, how can we actually reclaim our birthright, which is to live with innocence? Which means I don't cause harm, I don't cause suffering, I don't cause you know, uh, to others in the course of living my life. I have goodwill you know, towards all. And the third was simplicity. We have become mired in so much complexity. We hide behind complexity in many cases. The 2008 financial crisis was manufactured out of complexity. We created these, these financial instruments that nobody understood. And many people got rich off of that because other people bought that. Uh, we hide behind that. So the important, essential things in life are simple. The fundamental truths are simple. And then the last was truth. What is our commitment to the truth? You know, Gandhi's autobiography was called My Experiments with Truth. 
And truth is such a fundamental and universal human ideal. But in the world of business, I mean, I got a PhD in marketing. What is marketing's relationship to the truth? And how do we commit to the truth in all matters? Right? So, so to me, that was a profound gift that I received that night. That uh, this is something that if we can aspire to manifest the list in every aspect of our life, I think that the world would be completely transformed. We would not be all the suffering on this planet. The majority, most of it, is us causing it to each other. We we are the only we killed two hundred million human beings in in the last century, right? And we are the only species that kills its own. And so all of that, I think, comes from a loss of those essential higher human attributes. We are not like other beings. You know, we have the capacity to rise above and be. But but very often we go the other the other direction. Yeah. Ain't that the truth? Raj, uh, thank you so much um, from, from, from the bottom of my, uh, my heart, but also uh, my tender heart and also my, my tough mind. Um, it's been a phenomenal um, odyssey from, from ayahuasca in, in, in the Amazon to the Gidas to, uh, to Wall Street and, and, of course, the future of humanity and then the re-feminization of, of entrepreneurial and business values. Um, thank you so much for, for, for being on the show with us. And um, I wish you all uh, all the best on your, your future journey of healing yourself, but also helping he- heal the world and, and, of course, us humans in it as well. Well, thank you very much, Anders. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show and your podcatcher and I'd be super grateful if you leave a review. For more information about the second renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, andersulmanilson.com. Coming up next, we speak with Simon Mannering from WeFirst, where we decode how purpose-led businesses are transforming the nature of business, why Wall Street is waking up to ESG investing, and what Greta Thunberg can teach us about creating a brand movement. We hope that what we learn together on the second renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.